AI this, AI that. AI is changing the way we learn. No wonder ChatGPT has been called the end of high school English, the end of the college essay, and the return of the handwritten in-class essay. It's changing the way we work. I have a friend who's building an app on his own. Normally he would have hired a developer. Instead, he's just using ChatGPT because it can code and it can correct its own code. All he has. Pretty soon, it'll be changing the way we do just about everything. Alexa, order trash liners. And yet, there have been just about zero rules governing artificial intelligence until now. I think we have made history today. Europe's gone and done some regulating on our latest technology, as Europe often does. People are using words like landmark and first of its kind. You might even hear us use those words on this episode of Today Explained. Support for Che Explained comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You're listening to Today Explained. Jess Weatherbed is a news writer at The Verge. And for a while now, she's been covering the EU's new AI Act. And was this process easy breezy, nah. <laughs> fancy free, or was it complicated? Uh, yeah, complicated is probably one way of putting it. We've got kind of a two-year timeline, roughly, to work with here. They they proposed the AI Act back in 2021. Artificial intelligence must serve people, and therefore artificial intelligence must always comply with people's rights. AI, as we know it at that point, was vastly different to what it is now. They were working with systems that were designed to do a very specific purpose. So it was a little bit easier to try and categorize how risky those those systems are going to be for, for people living within the EU. There's been a hell of a lot of interruptions and a lot of disruption caused by various things. But the biggest one, I would say, in the last two years was systems like ChatGPT. It's a software that has gone viral this week. It's a chatbot that uses natural language processing to generate responses to user inputs. Now, suddenly, rather than these AI systems that are only built to do a specific job, you've got these foundation models or large language models that are literally designed to do pretty much anything you can put their, their mind to it. They can generate images, they can write text, they can apparently write code, they can, you know. And it presented so many new options that weren't anything that could be covered by the original scope of the AI Act. We have seen a change. We have seen a change in the mood, in the, in the discourse, and now there is no uh, big deal, no big contraposition on the need to find uh, a, a sensible uh, regulation for generative AI. 
it had to be like reworked several times over. It's it's one of the largest contributors to the delays in actually getting it approved. Between that and discussions around how it can be applied to things like national security and law enforcement were the, the two most highly contested points of what's been argued and debated about over the last year. Okay, so the EU has been talking about regulating AI for a good while, but things got real this December. It kind of came to a head around 10 days ago. That was when the uh, the provisional agreement was made. But prior to that, it was about 36 hours of just solid debate. I think that you have all heard and probably agree that AI is too important not to regulate. And it's too important uh, to badly regulate. A good regulation that we all agree on as soon as possible must be a common objective. At one point, they had been in Brussels uh, having one prolonged uh, conversation, trying to iron out the differences and compromises for about 22 hours at least. So you've got a lot of tired, cranky, potentially sleep-deprived lawmakers, policymakers, all crammed into a building trying to finalise a set of blueprint AI regulations that are apparently going to be, you know, set the example for every other global regulators, and yet they're in a room cramming like college students uh, before a finals exam. (laughs) But they got it done. It was worth it because they got it done? Yeah, well, it, it, they've got it provisionally agreed. So this is kind of the, the first big step to it being completely done. What did they get done? What are these landmark EU regulations on artificial intelligence? We don't know for sure yet. Oh. <laughs> the, uh, the full text isn't going to be available for several weeks. What they tend to do with these is that they will make compromises based on principles. Now they actually have to go away and jazz it up with the, the legal language that they want to have things adhered to at that point. And we built a risk-based approach that uh, identifies uh, high-risk uh, AI uh, use cases that needs to be more regulated, that needs to be checked on data used to train it. A lot of it seems to be following the same kind of framework that they proposed years ago, which is that they wanted a risk-based tiered system that you could categorize different AI systems with. And by taking certain like attributes of what they could apply to, you can then go, great, these are low risk. These ones are high risk, which means that they're going to have to be subjected to all these investigations. They're going to have to tell us what they're doing with their data, how much power they use. Like It, it just makes it a little bit easier rather than having a complete free-for-all or wild, wild west of not even having a distinction for what AI is, which was where they were in 2021. And we also identified the uses that we think should be outrightly banned, uh, like the uh, use of biometric identification in public spaces on real time uh, to avoid, uh, by banning it, the risk of mass surveillance. And we also banned predictive uh, policing, uh, social scoring, emotion recognition for students and workers, because we think that in these cases there is no added value and more risks than uh, benefits. I remember Joe Biden sort of announcing his oversight of AI and all the AI guys came to the White House and everyone was smiling and it felt very performative. Were the AI guys happy about this regulation or were they less into it? Initially, I haven't seen anything in terms of response off the the finalized provisional agreement that we've just seen. But early on when they were talking about blanketing all of these systems as high risk because they just didn't know what to do with them, they were very unhappy, to say the least. So companies like OpenAI, uh, Microsoft and Google 
these companies uh, all lobbied the EU to basically come forward and go, but we're we're fine to self-regulate. We don't need to be held accountable. <laughs> and it's not fair that you're going to assume that our products are, are automatically bad just because they could be bad. We've seen what happens to countries that try to over-regulate tech. I don't think that's what we want here. It wasn't only the AI companies that were a little bit unhappy about it. There was also some members of the EU that were not particularly happy about it because they're hoping that uh, homegrown AI companies can have the room to innovate. So we know that France, Germany and Italy at some point back in November turned around and went, how about we just don't regulate general AI at all <laughs> and let them do their own thing? And I think quite understandably, a lot of the rest of the uh, the EU turned around and went, uh, no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then that led on to a couple of extra weeks of highly contested arguments about what they should be regulating, what should be involved in this agreement, like, two years after it was first proposed. Hmm. Well, speaking of delays, when do these rules go into effect? I mean, we don't even have them officially yet. When do they take effect? So this is going to be a multi-step process. Uh, when the, the law comes into effect, uh, within six months, anything that's outright prohibited uh, which includes, for example, a, a lot of this was to do, uh, in terms of kind of like national security and uh, biometric surveillance. That will come into effect within six months to try and get that enforced as quickly as possible. Uh, the obligations that are going to be impacted against general AI, so the stuff that's probably going to impact companies like OpenAI, uh, that should come into effect 12 months after the law itself has taken effect. So that stuff is probably going to take into effect in 2025, anything that's going to impact these big companies. And then the remainder of all the rest of the gubbins, everything else that they need to tidy up uh, should be in place by 2026. So <laughs> like the full force of this law could take an, an, another two years, like two and a half years potentially to actually do anything. Are we going to have a different set of problems by that point? When you consider how uh, much stuff changed between them proposing this law in 2021 and then just right. OpenAI kind of appearing on the scene within a year later going, hey, have you heard of generative AI that can do anything? Like We could be looking at a completely different landscape by then. And unfortunately, I'm not in the business of being like a seer or a prophet or anything. So I can't turn around and say, absolutely, we're going to have a different environment to deal with. They've done the best with this system that they've got, the tiered system, to make sure that anything that's introduced might be able to be, just be categorized within it already. They know that if it's going to be a, an AI model that's turning around saying that it can do several different jobs, it's going to be classified as a, as a general AI and it's going to be beholden to a certain level of restriction. Same as if they look at it and go, well, yeah, this is a... I don't know, a customer-facing chatbot that's going to go here. Like they, They've made it so that anything that's developed within the future, hypothetically, can be slotted into the existing rules. But hmm. as far as I'm aware, that was also the plan in 2021, and look what happened. I don't think it's the ironclad set of rules that anyone was hoping for at this point in time, especially when a lot of the stuff that needs to be regulated, people are actually saying, needs to kind of be discussed prompt, like now. Right? And it's taken, I would say probably an embarrassingly long time for a bunch of uh, politicians and uh, AI providers to come together and make an agreement on what should constitute a safe development going forward. It's very much like the dog meme of just sitting there with a the room on fire going, This is fine. I'm okay with the events that are unfolding currently. It's good that they're in. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done and there's still some changes that could be made. But for now, at least, it's, it's a concrete agreement. There's no more in-squabbling about how we're going to work the tiered systems or what's going to be included in there. The framework is in place and they can at least progress now rather than this, the stagnation that we've had for the past two years.
Jess Weatherbed at The Verge. Read her at TheVerge.com. When we're back on Today Explained, why Europe is always first with this stuff. First. Support for Today Explained comes from Mint Mobile. Sometimes you see a really good sale, a really good deal, and you think, huh, what's the catch? You may be used to seeing, quote-unquote, great deals from overpriced wireless providers and thinking, what's the catch? With Mint Mobile, they say, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash explained. That's mintmobile.com slash explained. You could cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash explained. $45 upfront payment is required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 GB on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Jay Explained comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for Today Explained comes from Quince. It's spring, which means it's time to shed that enormous puffer jacket and don some more sunshine-appropriate attire. In that case, you may want to check out Quince. Quince offers springtime pieces like 100% organic cotton gauze tiered maxi dresses and 100% European linen blazers. I really want to currently Google organic cotton gauze tiered maxi dresses in the meantime here's here's claire white from from our business team here at vox everything i've received is incredibly comfortable and the quality was really surprising after now receiving this first batch i feel like i can trust that the quality is going to be good across the board I googled the dresses. There's there's all kinds. I've seen those dresses. You can indulge in affordable luxury by going to quince.com slash explain for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash explain to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash explain. Today Explained, Sean Ramos firm joined by Columbia University professor Anu Bradford. She's the author of a book called The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World. So the Brussels Effect refers to European Union's unilateral ability to regulate the global marketplace. So the EU is one of the largest and wealthiest consumer markets in the world, and there are very few global companies that can afford not to trade in the EU. So as the price for accessing the European market, they need to follow European regulations. But often it is in their business interest to basically extend those regulations across their global production, 
or their global conduct because they want to avoid the cost of complying with multiple different regulatory regimes. Is the EU just always trying to be first or is there something special going on here? How are they able to move relatively, comparatively quickly on artificial intelligence? I don't think the EU necessarily wants to be first, but it just has the ability to regulate. If you compare to the United States, there is not similar polarization in the European legislator as there is in Congress. Mm. So the political divides are not preventing legislation from moving forward. There's also much less lobbying, or the lobbying is less effective in the EU. So the the US legislative process is very much shaped by tech companies that have influence over lawmaking. And the EU just does not operate quite the same way. So the civil society also has access to legislators and often then offsets or balances the message that the lawmakers are hearing from the tech companies. So basically what you're saying is in Europe, you all have functional government. (laughs) That is one very good way to put it. There is still a functioning government in the EU. There's a legislator that is capable of passing legislation, and that makes a big difference. So can you give us a sense of the history here, how much the EU has managed to accomplish in terms of tech regulation because of this functional government ideology on technology? So I would go back to early 1990s. That's when the U.S. really stepped back from regulation. Because the internet has such explosive potential for prosperity, it should be a global free trade zone. Up until then, the U.S. had often been setting the rules that had global impact. But then the U.S. really adopted this market-driven dogma that was very anti-regulation. So the U.S. took the lead in promoting this deregulation agenda. It should be a place where government makes every effort First, as the vice president said, not to stand in the way. And the EU stepped in and filled the vacuum because at that very point, the EU was ramping up its own efforts to integrate the common European market. And that meant it needed to harmonize regulations so that we remove the barriers from within the member states for training within the EU. So the EU started proactively building a regulatory state, not for the purpose of ruling the world, but for the purpose of making Europe an integrated, strong trading area. We will strengthen the impact of this community through the ongoing implementation of common foreign and security policies. So then the EU uh, started focusing its regulatory efforts on digital economy. The European Union has approved rules to force big technology firms such as Google, Facebook and Twitter to remove illegal content. The European Union has hit tech giant Meta with a record-breaking fine of over a billion dollars for defying privacy rules. And the gap between what the EU was producing and what the US was failing to do in the regulatory space just became larger and larger. But initially, it was really the U.S.'s decision to say that, look, we trust the markets and the EU making philosophically a very different rule. And I think the inadvertent effect, the the unintended consequence was that the U.S. basically ceded this whole governance space to the EU. And what does it accomplish? Give, Give us some of the greatest hits. 
Well, I would say that GDPR is by far the most famous hit. The European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, known to friends as GDPR, goes into effect tomorrow. So that was enacted in 2016, and that is a very significant regulation in shaping the entire global data privacy conversation and legislative frameworks. Then also antitrust. So the Europeans are very concerned about the abuse of market power by dominant tech companies. You have to recognize that you have powers beyond anyone else, and with that comes a responsibility. So they have been for antitrust lawsuits against Google that have been successfully concluded in the EU and that have resulted in around $10 billion in fines. And then there is the content moderation space. So the Europeans are very concerned about disinformation. They are very concerned about hate speech and the toxic environment surrounding internet users uh, when they are using the platforms. And we need to say to some of these service providers, you have a responsibility for the way you do business to make sure that people feel as comfortable when they are online as well as when they are offline. So the Europeans have moved to limit hate speech and limit disinformation, even though they remain committed to freedom of expression. There is just a sense that that important commitment to free speech is balanced against some other fundamental rights, including a right to dignity. And a hard pivot away from dignity to your phone chargers Maybe the most tangible of all these Brussels effects. There are USB-A chargers. There are USB-B chargers. There are USB-C chargers. There are micro USB chargers. There are mini USB chargers. There are light. The EU also regulates consumer electronics. So there's an environmental concern surrounding consumer waste. And then another concern, just the, the consumer convenience, if you like. The idea that we do not want the consumers to have to uh, buy different cords for all the different devices and all the different jurisdictions where they are using them. So uh, the EU standardized the common charger, which then led Apple to also switch its own charging port and extend that chains, not just in Europe, but also outside of the EU. The, you know, the word from Apple basically is like, The Europeans made us do it, Mm -hmm. but it's time and we think people aren't going to freak out. Now, in a case like that with the Apple USB-C charger situation, where literally everyone around the world who has this device will have their tech now changed because of this EU regulation, why does it make more sense for a tech company like Apple to change this charging port for the whole world instead of just for the European market. Tell us how the Brussels effect makes sense for a business. So often for these tech companies, it's just a matter of efficiency and a cost calculus. So it is not efficient to run multiple different production lines. There are scale economies in uniform production. So they don't want to be producing different variations for different markets. And same applies for companies like uh, Meta's Facebook. 
they pride themselves of having one global Facebook. So if you and me are having a conversation and I'm in Europe and you are in the United States, they don't want there to be a different speech rules that apply to the conversation, whereby I would not be seeing a part of the conversation that you are able to see because there are different content moderation rules. That would make it really difficult to have effective cross-border conversations. But I would say, Sean, that the most common uh, reason is just simply, it is just too expensive to have many varieties of the same product. I mean, I want to bring this back to AI. Has, has Europe met its match in artificial intelligence? We were talking earlier in the show about how these new regulation proposals may not go into effect until 2026, at least fully, that's a very long time away. And this technology might look dramatically different by then. Our guest did mention that, you know, these regulations might have room to be augmented to fit whatever AI looks like in 2026. But this does feel like a new day for tech regulation. So I completely agree and I concede that regulating in this space is extremely difficult. This is a fast-moving technology and nobody knows where we are a few years from now. But I don't think it is a reason not to intervene and regulate. There are simply too many serious harms that we need to guard individuals and societies against. So a responsible government does step in, even knowing that that regulation may need to be revisited. But you cannot let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm. There are also tremendous costs in waiting. And, and we do not want to just watch for all those costs to be materialized. The goal here is not to crush the, the development of AI, because I think it, it, it really is important to encourage that. I think the goal is to understand that alongside those opportunities, there are non-trivial harms and the governments need to take those seriously. And trusting the tech companies to self-govern, it is irresponsible because these companies are so focused on pursuing the profits that they just cannot afford to spend enough time on thinking about what happens to democracy, what happens to individual rights. And that's not even their expertise. And that's why I take comfort that there seems to be global momentum growing, that the governments are now increasingly seeing that, look, we need to regulate this space. And now they have a template. Now they have an example that the governments can step in. And when they can step in, how do they do it? Well, they can look at the EU's AI Act. And I think that is a very powerful example for the rest of the world. Anu Bradford, Columbia University. She's the author of The Brussels Effect, How the European Union Rules the World. But even more recently, and also pertinent to our conversation, Digital Empires, the Global Battle to Regulate Technology. Our show today was produced by Amanda Llewellyn. It was edited by Matthew Collette, fact-checked by Laura Bullard, and mixed by Patrick Boyd. Today Explained 